All right, guys. So if you are new, um, we are uh, we're in the middle of a series called Gospel Depth. And in this series, we've been going through Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, it's a letter uh, written uh, about 2000 years ago. And it was written to a, the church at Rome, you know, kind of modern day Italy. And, and, and really, it's 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 one of Paul's longer letters. A lot of people think of it as like his magnum, uh, his magnus opus. Uh, it's kind of his his big body of theological work and practical instruction for how to be a follower of Jesus. And so we run it to a specific church at a specific time in a specific context, but there is so much we can learn about God and what he has done in Jesus for us and how we're called to live in light of that. And so Romans chapters 1 through 11, Paul's really answering the question, what is wrong with this world and what has God done about it to fix it? How is God redeeming uh, this world, that, that everyone in their bones knows, whether you're a Christian or an atheist, I don't care where you're at on the theological or philosophical spectrum, something in you tells you the world is not the way it was meant to be. And in Romans, Paul lays out a Christian perspective and why that is. He says, this is what is wrong with our world. And this is what God has done to fix it. And so Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul is answering uh, that question through uh, a thing called the gospel, which means good news. He's laying out the good news of what God has done by sending the person of Jesus to live as an example for us, to teach us how to live and then to die in our place and rise again for our freedom. That through Jesus, through trusting in Jesus, it changes everything about our relationship to God. And fundamentally, uh, uh, and simultaneously, as we are reconciled to God through Jesus, Paul says, it then changes how we relate horizontally to the, the men and women around us in this world, to other humans. Changes the way we relate to the environment. Changes the way we relate to government. Changes the way we relate to money. Changes the way we relate to pretty much everything, even our own bodies. It's changed if we are connected to God through Jesus. And so Romans chapters 12 through 16 are answering the question, if we have been connected to God through Jesus, if that, if that reconciliation started our redemption, started our transformation, what does that transformed life look like? And so, so far in this section, we've been unpacking kind of the new way we, sh we should relate to ourselves, to one another in the church family, and in the last two messages uh, the way we relate to our enemies and the way we relate, the way we relate to a often hostile government <clears throat> of the land we live in. And so today we're going to continue to answer the question, how has what Jesus done in the gospel changed the way we ought to relate to different groups of people? And we're going to continue to add to our list of qualities that should be true of us as disciples, as a church. Uh, we've talked about hospitality and forgiveness and grace and peace and submission and honor. And today we're going to talk about love. Love. And so I've got three points today. Uh, they are basic but important. They're foundational. So when you think, don't think basic like uh, silly or, or think foundational. Like they're not, um, without them, we don't know how to love well. And the points are these. Uh, number one, we're called to love everyone. Number one, we're called to love everyone. Number two, the shape of love is found in the person and teaching of Jesus. The shape of love is found in the person and teaching of Jesus. And number three, living with a long-term perspective frees us up to love others well. Living with a long-term perspective frees us up to love others well. All right, so we'll jump into number one. Number one, we are called to love everyone. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We're going to pick up in verse 8 where we left off last week. And Paul says this. 
He says, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, the commandments, think 10 commandments here. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. Because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now there's a lot in that passage, but I want to first start out by looking at verse eight. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul says here that for a follower of Jesus, we owe everyone we see love. Now, that, that should be pretty obvious at this point in, in Paul's letter to the Romans because he, he told them in verse uh, chapter 12, he told them to love their enemies. And so if you like, we all love people who aren't our enemies. So, so, so if you um, love your enemies, you probably would love everyone. But, 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 but Paul restates it here that we're called to love everyone. Not just called to love them, we owe them love. We owe them love. That means that you and I, I owe the Republican love. I owe the Democrat love. I owe the black man love. I owe the Latin woman love. I owe the Muslim love. I owe the boho yoga instructor, I'm not sure what I am, love. I owe the fundamentalist Christian love. I owe the homeless person love. I owe the addict love. I owe the rich person love. I owe my, my barista love. I owe my bartender love. I owe my children love, even when they don't listen. I owe the, the gay man love. I owe the straight woman love. I owe my spouse love, even when I'm frustrated with her. I owe Americans love. I owe the people of other nations love. You see, I don't get to not love anybody. Every human being you've ever laid eyes on is made in the image and likeness of God, meaning they're worthy of dignity and respect, but also my love. They're, they're owed that. And so in this moment, regardless, uh, in any moment, regardless of what someone is talking about or what they're doing, Christian, you owe them love. Just think about that for a second. This means whoever you're, you're sitting with, that you look across at them and you say, I owe you love. I'm not saying I owe you disagreement. It doesn't mean I owe you whatever you want from me, but it means I owe you love. Can you imagine how different our world would be if we assumed that we owed everyone we encountered love? That was the guiding question we had when we laid eyes on people. How am I going to 
give this person love? What does it look like to, 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 to credit them my love today? Again, love is not just making someone feel good. We'll get into that. It's doing what is best for that person. Love sometimes hurts, but it doesn't harm. Love is sacrificial. Love looks like Jesus. First Corinthians chapter 13, it, it describes love in the context of a local church, but, but really it's laying out what the character of Jesus. Love is personified in Jesus. First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Imagine if these were the terms and conditions for social media. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. No record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Which leads to my second point. The shape of love is revealed in the word of God and the son of God. So here's the thing. We're called to love everybody, but an important question is, what is love? It's millions of songs asking that question. And as sinful humans, we don't determine what love is. God does. Our world is full of abusive, manipulative, foolish, or immature people who would tell you that to love them looks like sinning or disobeying God or just being generally unhealthy. They'll say, I don't feel loved by you, or if you loved me, you wouldn't do X. And so it can be tricky to navigate relationally. What is love? Our culture is saying love is this all the time. And Paul's saying, actually, we know what love is, not because of what's on social media, not because of what, you know, your friends say or don't say or what your mom says or doesn't say. We know what love is because God has revealed in his word and in his son what love is. Jesus is love incarnate. The word is love clarified. If you want to know what love is, look to Jesus and his word, the word he trusted in. A Scottish scholar named Sinclair Ferguson talks about this connection. He says, so love and law, God's moral commands, are not enemies. They are in-laws united by the relationship to Jesus. Without Christ, the law is powerless. Without law, love is directionless, meaning we don't know what it is. Because of Christ, the Holy Spirit has been poured into believers' hearts, enabling or empowering us to love. And spirit-empowered love involves keeping God's commands. The law is like the train tracks, and the spirit is like the engine. End quote. So these things go together. Paul says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, has fulfilled the commands of God. In other words, if we love someone, we have fulfilled the purpose of the law of God's commands. But God's commands are, are clearly demonstrated when we love. Jesus echoed the same idea Paul is unpacking here in his own teaching. In Mark chapter 12, we look, at an, uh, we look on into an, an encounter with Jesus and an expert of the Old Testament law, a legal scribe. And in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, and again, you have to know that the Pharisees hated Jesus, and they were often looking for ways to trick him. And so a lot of the... Um, the, the, the religious leadership, kind of the rank-and-file religious people of his day were often trying to trick him with, with questions. Oftentimes, questions about the Old Testament, which is a bad idea because Jesus, you know, he's God. He, he, wrote, he wrote the book. He knows it. Mark 12, verse 20, it says, One of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, which command is the most important of all? 
Which command? In the entire Old Testament, hundreds of laws. What's the most important commandment, in other words? And again, it's as if, if Jesus says that one's more important, then it negates the rest. It's almost like Jesus saying that um, parts of the law aren't important, which could be a charge they throw at him, uh, you know, in, in, in the religious courts. It says, Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. It's a good answer. So then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly, correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I love this. And no one dared question him any longer. So... Jesus is saying, if you want to boil down the entire purpose of the Old Testament law, and in particular the Ten Commandments, it's this. Love God and love your neighbor. If you're truly loving your neighbor, you will obey God. If you're truly obeying God, you will love your neighbor. They're connected. Oftentimes, religious, conservative people will often go, I love God, and I don't care how I treat my neighbor. There's this disconnect from the God they say they believe in and how they treat actual people in the real world. And then simultaneously, there's this um, false dichotomy that, that goes, there's this kind of progressive thing that goes, if we love people, we don't care about an old God with old rules. And, and Jesus is like, no, it's, it's neither of those. If you truly love God, you will love people. And loving people is, you don't love a person when you're not loving God to love them. Again, we see this in Ro back in Romans 13. It says, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. A commentator named Tony Morita said this about this passage. I thought this was really helpful. He says, Paul quotes four horizontal commands regarding adultery, murder, stealing, and coveting, and then quotes Leviticus 19.18 about neighbor love. Adultery is not love because it violates God's commandments. It is an expression of rebellion, lust, and selfishness, not love. Regarding murder, you obviously are not showing love if you murder a person. I don't think we need a scholar for that, I guess, is what he's saying. Likewise, you do not love a person if you steal from him. In contrast, love is about faithfulness, not adultery, about wanting to see others flourish, not murdering them, and about blessing others, not stealing from them. Regarding coveting, Paul moves from actions to a desire. Coveting is not an expression of love for neighbor. Coveting, coveting is wanting what God has not chosen to give you. If you want another person's spouse, life, car, house, reputation, job, gifts, or anything else, that is not love. Paul adds the phrase, and any other commandment, to say that all of God's commands reveal what love is. God's law reflects God's own character and his love. So when we obey God's commands as revealed in Scripture, it leads us to loving people. Love is manifested through obedience, in other words. Obedience shapes what love looks like. Tim Keller adds this. He says, love is really just following the law. In other words, Paul refuses to pit love and law against each other. 
The obedient thing is the loving thing. The loving thing is the obedient thing. If we want to love others, we will obey God's commands. Modern people don't see it this way. In the short run, it often seems that the loving thing to do is break the law. For example, often we know that the truth will hurt someone, so we lie. But Paul is warning us not to think we are wiser than God in determining what will hurt or help someone. Usually, when we talk about the loving thing, he has in quotes, we mean the comfortable thing, that which will give the person the least distress. After all, the point of love is to do no harm, but only God knows what we and our neighbors need ultimately. He built our souls and hearts, and he knows what we need. The law, therefore, is God's way of saying, you want to do your neighbor no harm. Well, here's how. Follow his, follow my commands, not your own instincts or wisdom. Close quote. Doctors take an oath uh, to do no harm. You guys know that? Like, man, I will do no harm. They don't take an oath to cause no discomfort. You guys know that? Resetting a bone is uncomfortable, but it's not harmful. Surgery is uncomfortable, but if it's the right diagnosis, it is not harmful. Okay? A good therapist doesn't just tell you what you want to hear. Sometimes they tell you things that are uncomfortable so that you might find healing. Sometimes they encourage you to look at a part of your past you didn't want to look at because they want you to be free from that thing, even if it's uncomfortable or even painful for a while. God knows what is best for people, not us. If you want to know what the shape of love is, again, look to the word of God and look to the person of Jesus, which leads to my third and final points. Living with a long-term perspective frees us up to love others well. Living with a long-term perspective frees us up to love others well. In Romans, chapters, uh, in Romans chapter 8, verses 11 to 12, Paul writes, Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is near. Paul is saying that this world will not go on much longer. That the eternal world will break in at any time now. Many people think um, Paul was mistaken. Uh, that, you know, Judgment Day didn't come as soon as he expected. But actually to think that is missing the point. Which is that we need to realize the short nature of this life. The fact that our own judgment is sooner than we think. In other words, life goes by quickly for us as people. As humans. Um, I realized this the other day. I'm coming up quickly on my 20th high school reunion. I'm coming up quickly on my 20th uh, wedding anniversary. And shortly after that, both of those things, my high school graduation and my wedding anniversary, feel like yesterday. Like they do not seem like they were 20 years ago. Uh, I have a son who just started middle school. I feel like it was our baby boy 10 minutes ago. It's why I, um, much to his chagrin and my attempts at change, I still call him boo in public, okay? I'm not trying to embarrass him. I just genuinely miss the part of his life where he moved from being a baby to becoming a middle schooler who cares about what other people think of him. Got offered uh, weed the other day, okay? Not by, no one in our house, take it easy. He's <laughs> at a skate park. But like, he's getting older. And I'm like, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's like about to be a teenager, 
life goes fast. And I'm told it gets faster the older you are. So Paul's saying life is short and we will be face to face with, with God sooner than we think. And in light of that, we should do something, which leads to verse 12. Paul again says, the night is nearly over and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul's saying because you're going to see God face to face sooner than you think, have an eternal perspective. And when we have an eternal perspective, we don't invest ourselves into things that don't matter in the long run. Things that keep us, that's where this passage comes together, things that keep us from loving others well. And he unpacks what those are in the next verse. Verse 13 says, let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. So Paul is saying that if you don't live with a long-term view, you will give yourself over to pursuits that will hamper your ability to love others well. Okay? For example, if you give yourself to alcohol or substances and you get drunk and high, you're going to struggle love to, you're going to struggle to love people well in that state. Right? If you think about drunkenness, for example, when people drink, they often become inappropriate. They're, if they're truly drunk, they become a burden to those around them. They physically can't take care of themselves, never mind loving other people. Many become violent when they're drunk. That's almost all entirely the opposite of love. But again, if, if, if you have a short-term view, you're like, man, you know, eat, drink, be merry. This is it. I, I'm doing it. Um, if, you live for, if you live for sex, which is a gift from God, to be enjoyed in a specific context, if you live for sex and gratifying every sexual desire, you will struggle to love well. Adultery, porn, cheap sex, abuse, hookups, and the shame and relational issues that all those behaviors breed will keep you from loving others. You can't indulge in those things in love in the way God calls you to love. You will hurt people. Given completely over to that stuff over a lifetime, you will destroy yourself and others. You destroy yourself and others. If you live for competition and you quarrel all the time, you will struggle to love others well because your life will be about making others feel inferior to you and keeping people beneath you. You have a lot of terrible relationships because you talk down to people all the time and eventually they pull away and you don't have relationships. You have fractured families that don't talk to each other anymore. Whole members of families, brothers and sisters, who don't talk to each other anymore. You'll have church splits where people don't talk to each other anymore. Or you'll have a fractured country where people don't talk to each other anymore. This is violence to our souls. This is why I think so much of the media is so bad for our souls. Uh, my issue with like Fox News and Tucker Carlson or... CNN or Rachel Maddow, I, I don't really care about their politics as much as I hate the fact that they turn people made in the image of God into two-dimensional figures. And they, and they put them into a box, a box that marks not owed love. And they're talked about in dehumanizing, vilifying, mocking ways. So Paul says you only waste your time on these things if you've lost track of the fact that you don't have much time. 
He's saying, use your life to manifest the love of Jesus everywhere you go. That's worth giving your life to, not these other things. But here's what I want you to catch. It could seem kind of like a moralistic message, like do, 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 do. But what I want you to catch is Paul is writing to the, the, the Christians in Rome here. And, and that itself is, a, is an act of grace because he's saying that you can struggle with addiction or sexual sin or relational sin and still be a follower of Jesus. Because many of you in this room struggle with some of the things I just listed. And at a heart level, we're all drawn to them by nature because of our flesh. We naturally wake up and want to do life on our terms. We're slowly learning. We're unlearn Discipleship's unlearning the way of the world, the way of our flesh, the way of the enemy, and relearning the ways of Jesus. And again, sanctification, that process of becoming like Jesus, is a slow process. One that you have to engage every day. Um, there's a debate at my house often. It's how often should our kids take showers, right? That that comes from a different that comes from uh, different corners, right? From our kids, it comes from uh, I want to stay up later and play one more video game or one more round of a board game or, or I just don't want to go to bed yet. And I know shower, you know, a you know, uh, a shower is getting in the way of the fun thing I'm doing. Now, if there's no more fun things to do, then they'll volunteer for showers to stay up later. So we're not doing video games? No, man, I'm feeling dirty, <laughs> right? And then there's other times where I'm like, man, I, they're dirty. They need, they, they need a shower. We need to, like, give all these kids showers. And there's other times where I'm like, I'm pretty tired. I got way dirtier than this and went to bed. That was fine. Like, we can wash their hands, their arms, their faces. Like, they'll be okay. So oftentimes we have this question, you know, how dirty is, is dirty enough for a shower or whatever. Um, but, but here's the reality. Um, every day we recommend, we tell our kids every day, you know, change your underwear, take a shower most days, but, but, but change your clothes. And so every day as they, as they walk around life, they collect dirt, they collect germs, they collect all kinds of stuff. And, and so we need, to, we, we need to be cleansed all the time, right? If you don't cleanse yourself over time, you will start to stink. It is the same thing spiritually. Each day, Jesus said, he said, um, when he taught the disciples to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread um, and forgive us of our trespasses. You need to know that the God of the universe who redeemed you to set you free from sin knows that you'll sin every day still. We are not perfect people. We're not people who, who, like, confess sin once a week or, you know, every few years. We're people who daily, my iPad just died, so the sermon's going to get way longer or way shorter. We'll see. I had it plugged in for hours, and it wasn't really plugged in. Who ever had that out? It's the worst. It's like the little, it's two connections. You know, there's the end of the wall and then the lightning cord into the, the charger. But family, day in and day out, you need the grace of Jesus, and it's available to you. Like, it really is. Hey, if your life is completely dominated by these things, and you have no interest in changing, I would say to you, I don't know that you are a follower of Jesus. Because you're not trying to follow him. But if you are following him, and you're not going as fast as you'd like, you wish you were further along than you are, but you want it so bad. If you gave into that thing again and you're so bummed that you gave into that thing again, what I want you to know is the fact that you're still trying to move forward tells me that you're a follower of Jesus. 
People who aren't followers of Jesus do not care about their sin. Okay? The righteous fall seven times, the Old Testament says, but they keep getting up. So family, we can still, we can change our clothes. It's good news. We can confess our sin to him and he'll deal with it. I'll close with verse 14. Because I have to, I don't have notes. It says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. And I actually had an outstanding quote by a scholar on this that I was so excited to read you. And I'm just going to go ahead and say that a sovereign God has decided that you didn't need that quote. So let's unpack this a little bit. We're in Christ. The beginning of Romans tells that we're in Christ. However, we have to remember the fact that we're in Christ. Right? So an analogy, uh, analogy the scholar gave that I thought was helpful um, is the idea that, again, putting on clothes, which is what Paul's doing. He says, imagine you put on uh, a tuxedo or a formal gown, you're going to go to a wedding, and then you, like, go and do, like, an F45 workout with that thing on, right? It, it, in light of what you're wearing, it doesn't make sense, okay? On top of that, you'll probably rip your clothes, right? D- it just doesn't make sense. So he's saying, since your identity is in Jesus, okay, so, so, so based, on the f- based on who Jesus is, what his desires are for you, what he has done for you, what he has set you free to be, it doesn't make sense, for you to live like the way that you lived before you were in Jesus. It's like, bro, why, why, are, you, why are you rocking a tuxedo to F45? Or why are you rocking a, a tracksuit, you know, to a wedding? I guess that could be cool. Uh, you can't even say why you're wearing Crocs anymore. Like, nothing is what it used to be, you know. Why are you wearing slips to a wedding? I don't know. like, man, why are you, so so again, come back to this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That means I'm in Jesus, which means I am not, I don't need to be ashamed or guilty or feel like I'm powerless. So the more I can remind myself, hey, I have been bought by Jesus. So that means I don't have to go back to toxic, codependent, romantic relationships with any guy that likes me. It means I don't have to uh, grovel over my sin for the ways that I've sinned sexually. I go, Jesus, you've set me free from that. I want to do a different thing. I, I was going to go do that, but I, I forgot what my life really is and who you really are. And I want to live a new way today. Teach me a new way. I know I have the power because it's Jesus to get the help I need when I'm weak in an area. It means if I, if I um, for years, I, I, I used alcohol to numb pain in my life, I can say, hey, I, I don't need to do that anymore. And I can get the help I need. It can be dangerous to, if you're genuinely alcoholic and you're here, it is physically dangerous to quit all by yourself. But we'd love to help you get connected to someone to make sure you do that in a safe way. But, but you even have the power. You might not have the power to stop in and of yourself, but you go, the Spirit's empowered me to get the help I need to be set free. I can stand in community with other brothers and sisters. I can bring my pain to Jesus and not look to alcohol to numb my pain anymore. I used to wear this. Now I wear this. I was going to go put on that outfit in the morning, and then I realized, nope, i got to put on a different outfit. One that doesn't have shame. One that isn't hiding. One that isn't bitter. The most natural thing in the world is to put these clothes on, but I have a different job now. I, go to a, I don't need to put on. I remember back in the day in, in high school, I worked at Burger King. And, uh, and when I'd get up, and I'd, I'd throw on that Burger King uh, you know, uniform. I was going to say outfit. Uniform, right? 
And uh, I remember one time I went to see Jackie. You know, guys love a <laughs> women. <laughs> Freestyle's getting off the rails. I remember I saw her one time. I made a joke. It's fine. But, but I remember one time I went to work, and I got to Burger King. I got my purple shirt on, got my hat. I'm ready to go. And they're like, you're not on the schedule. And I remember people were hanging out after, and I went home and changed before I went to go hang out. Like, I did not want to show up to the, the high school party in the Burger King fit. Okay? In the same way, when you go, hey, I, it's natural to put this on, but it doesn't make sense for me to wear it anymore. And by the way, I never rock that fit anymore. Because I don't work there anymore. So I don't have to wear the outfit of shame. I'm saying, you guys get what I'm saying. Sorry. Back into the spiritual metaphor. I don't need to wear an outfit of shame or of guilt or of powerlessness of pettiness, of unrighteous anger, of judgmentalism. Like, I don't need to do any of that. And so I'll fight, but we still have this tendency to want to put those clothes back on, but instead we need space to go, no, I'm in Jesus. Um, I ordered a, a bunch of the new CBR journals this past week uh, for some of you guys. Um, I, I, man, as elders, we've been talking about coming back to the importance of CBR. And I'm realizing this, this idea, just this reset. And for some reason, I think you put on clothes in the morning, I'm going a little bit further than the text is here. But you put clothes on in the morning. And I think we need to put on Christ in the morning. We need to remind ourselves of what is true before we hit the world. A lot of people are recommending before you do anything on your phone that you just read the Bible. Even just a couple of verses. Not a crazy, like you get up. Some people are even recommending you don't use a normal alarm clock. So you're not on your phone right away. But that you have, you know, God shaping your worldview each day. The truth of the gospel transforming the way that you're going to, you know, you're going to take on news stories that day. You're going to take on people's opinions that day. You're going to take on what's happening at work that day. But are you doing that from, I know I'm in Christ and what's true in the world around me? Or am I letting that dictate what I believe is true about Christ in the world around me and me? And so we need to put on Christ.